genuine faith should not be blind faith. In these segments of Why I Believe, we're going to explore genuine evidence for genuine faith. Hi, and welcome to Why I Believe. My name is Christian, and I'm here in the studio today with Michael and Brad. Welcome, gentlemen. Hi, guys. Good to be back on here together. Always nice to be back. Now, we're continuing our series that we've just recently started on why an intelligent thinking person could possibly believe in God, take the Bible seriously, and bother with faith at all. And we spent the first time together um, talking about how both whether you believe in everything coming from nothing or whether you believe God made everything, it takes a certain degree of faith. We looked at some evidences as to why we could take the Bible seriously or at least begin to consider reading it and exploring it from, a, I guess, a thinking or an intelligent perspective. And today we're going to spend a little bit more time looking not just at prophecy, but at a very specific prophecy. Why do you think prophecy is a big deal when it comes to, to faith and thinking about God? Prophecy is evidence. It is, yeah, okay. isn't it? Yep. If it comes true, then you've got a reasonable foundation to believe it. Mm, absolutely. I guess it's, it's something testable. Like if something claims something and, you know, it's, yeah, it gives that testability, doesn't mm-hmm. it? And it also creates a boundary for human limitations. <laughs> True. You know, we can do, as Brad mentioned last time we were talking, we can, we can do some experiments where we can predict based on past observable behavior. But the reality is we simply do not know the future. I mean, things as simple as the weather. We still can't get right every time. Imagine if you could predict the stock market, investments, um, if you could predict the way life would turn out, the best career in the next five, ten years. You know, it would be fantastic. You'd, you'd be the smartest person on earth, the wealthiest person on earth. We just can't do that. The future is a barrier for human endeavors. And when somebody claims to know the future, that gives it a sense of a, a superhuman context or ability outside the normal realm that's right outside the normal realm and we talk about that realm as the realm of faith you know it takes a lot of faith to believe that someone knows the future and it suggests that they're they're beyond humanity so that's why the bible makes a lot of predictions it has prophecies it makes claims and it uses those claims to suggest hey trust me because i know what i'm talking about and the god Mm. of the bible says and in fact jesus says in john he says i've told you these things before they happen so that when they happen, you will believe. That's very true. And I guess when you're looking at the human realm too, of what's our human limitations, Christian, our ability to actually predict the future is likely dependent on our ability to influence it. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you, if you have the power of, you know, within yourself to influence the outcome of a matter, you can be reasonably confident. I mean, you can't, there's always unforeseen things that can come up. But as a human, if you've got the power to influence something, mm-hmm. then you can, you know, have half a chance of predicting it. Sure, but, and I guess that's probably has some some relevance in the spiritual realm too. Mm-hmm. If God claims to be the Creator, He claims to be able to um, control the universe, mm-hmm. and if if He does, then hey, it would make sense. He would be able to influence the future in in a very strong way and on a global scale. Yeah, yeah. The reality is, even the most powerful man on earth today, um, with all his or her power, can only influence very little yeah. uh, of the future. They might be able to start a war, make some money and so on, but yeah. definitely not the future in 50, 100, 200 years. Yeah. Um, that's, it's beyond the ability of any human being alive. Yeah, and there's a distinction between predicting something broadly, generally, like we were mm. talking about before, Nostradamus, Yes. and predicting something quite specific, which I think the Bible does. Mm. Absolutely, and that's what we're going to look at today. 
We're going to spend some time exploring a particular Bible passage or chapter, Daniel chapter 2, and we're going to look at a specific vision or prophecy, prediction about the future, and match that to history, and uh, I guess gain a sense of, is the Bible, or does the God of the Bible have the ability to foresee beyond human limitation, to see the future. So let's go there to Daniel chapter 2. Now before we start reading some of the, the verses in that prophecy, uh, a little bit of the context. What do we know about Daniel? What's happening? Where is he? Tell me a little bit about uh, what you know. Grew up as a prince in Israel. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And basically the Israelites got into some bad habits, mm-hmm. started worshipping idols, and God said, alright, I'll leave you to it. Mm-hmm. And the Babylonians came in and conquered the Israelites. Yep, yep. Daniel included and taken away and made a eunuch. Mm-hmm. And I'm one of the lucky ones in a sense that he, um, instead of being just as a slave or, you know, in some, you know, more servile sort of capacity, he was actually elevated to the court of the king, which mm-hmm. is a, yeah. I didn't know he was made a eunuch. He definitely was. Oh, and yes. if you don't know what a eunuch is, just in case there are children uh, listening, <laughs> Google it. Uh, definitely not a pleasant experience for a man. No, no. Unless you're a child, don't Google it. Ask your mum or dad to Google it. That's exactly <laughs> right. That's a lucky one in the sense that he yes. was actually yeah, yeah. like, I mean, the, you know, what king, mm-hmm. if you if you look at modern wars and stuff, you know, what conquerors in the modern age would actually get the princes from a conquered empire and elevate them into the court. That's mm. a, um, it was a rather interesting and actually pretty smart concept of what Nebuchadnezzar was doing in trying to assimilate mm. um, different kingdoms together. Yeah. But yeah, from a human point of view, it looks like a real lucky situation, doesn't it? You know, you could have been just head chopped off. You'd been in, you know, a prince in the previous kingdom. Mm-hmm. But this this case, he wasn't. And possibly like a bittersweet experience, oh, yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> forced to serve the enemy. That's right. You know, yeah. castrated, forced to serve the enemy while your family's being killed, and yet you're alive yeah. um, in the palace of the world's superpower, yeah. which is what Babylon and the Babylonian Empire was at the time under King Nebuchadnezzar, yeah. who happened to be the king. Now, in Daniel chapter 1, we read a little bit about Daniel and his friends. They're faithful, they're loyal, and even though they've gone into this foreign land, they follow their God. They follow Yahweh, the Jewish God, the God of the Old Testament. So we find them being faithful to him, and then we find this encounter in Daniel chapter 2 about a strange dream. Why don't we go there? Daniel chapter 2, maybe Michael, if you've got your Bible there, uh, if you'd like to read just verse 1 to 3. Sure. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and astrologers, to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Now, for most of us, when we have dreams or interesting dreams, bad or good, sometimes we put it down to what we ate the night before, right? Yep. Um, you know, you, or what we watched the night before. Or what you watched or what you were thinking about or what's stressing or bothering you. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't place that much importance on dreams. Now, I've, I've worked here for a few years in different places. I've never been in a workplace or I've never interacted with family members that, that have a dream and ring me up and tell me about a dream they've had. Has that happened to any of you guys? No. Nope. I've had someone share a dream, and it's like, you know, this is weird, you know, what does it mean? Mm-hmm. I have had it. It's not okay. usual. It's, it's very, it's very rare. Yeah. Um, and were you able to tell them what the dream meant? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so even if th- someone does tell us about it, it's like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. I guess wait and see approach, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, back then, they had a really different attitude to dreams. They believed dreams were a divine omen from the gods, and a king, someone in such a powerful position, would often call the, the experts, the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, essentially your members of parliament and your scientists 
bring them in together, say, I've got this dream, and tell me what it means. Now, that's what it looks like on the surface if you read it quickly, but there's something a little different there. What do you think is different? Well, it hasn't really told us the full details. The next few verses really open that out, don't they? Well, let's read those. Why don't you read uh, the next few verses, verse 4 to verse 6, Brad? Sure. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, Long live the king. Tell us the dream, and we'll tell you what it means. But then the king said to the astrologers, Well, I'm serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you'll be torn limb from limb and your houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. But if you tell me what I dreamed and what the dream means, I'll give you many wonderful gifts and honours. Just tell me the dream and what it means. Okay, is that clear enough what's going on? (laughs) What, What exactly is he demanding of them? Uh, to read his mind, that's all. Just to read his mind. No big deal. So he's not cooperating. He's not actually helping them by saying, this is the dream I had. Help me. He's saying, no, no, you tell me the dream and the interpretation. Uh, look, I reckon if I'd, I was in the king's quarters, one of his um, things, I reckon I could come up with a good meaning if he gave me the dream. I'd sort of think about and you know make some airy-fairy something up, but it is a bit different. And that's what they did. The reality is that regardless of what you believe about the supernatural world, we know from history that all kings went out to war, or most kings went out to war based on the advice of their magicians. Mm. You know, they would say, should I go to fight with the oncoming enemy? And the magicians would always preach victory. And that, you know, they'd cut, sacrifice some animal, they'd look at some clouds, they'd throw some sticks on the ground, they'd burn some smoke, all sorts of things. And it just so happened that every time it was always in favor of the king that they served. And that was a really good strategy. You see, if the king was victorious, he would come back and who would he praise? Person who told him what it meant. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Now, if the king was not victorious, he usually died. In which case, he'd never come back and you're okay. You'd advise the next guy. When the next guy came on, you'd say, we told him not to go to war. (laughs) (laughs) The the guy who's dead isn't there to defend uh, himself or to to say otherwise. So magicians had probably quite a good cruisy job. And this is where push comes to shove, crunch time. Let's read a few more verses there. So before we it's interesting the the king's calling their bluff here because, I mean, these guys are claiming to have supernatural insights. Mm. And he's put two and two together. And he thought, look, if these guys really are for real... They should be able to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. For the first time, he realizes that he's, he's paying uh, these civil servants for absolutely no good reason. Um, Mike, would you like to read from verse 8 to verse 12? Sorry, I start in verse 7. Just Is that all right? Cause we, uh, uh, yep, we let's go to verse yep. 7. Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants his dream. We will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You've conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it. The astrologers answered the king, There's no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however mighty or great, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they don't live among the humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. Now, that sounds a little bit extreme, but we have to realize in in that day and age, there was no differentiation between a magician, an astrologer, a necromancer, a politician, a scientist. They were were one and the same. In fact, science and faith have been intertwined for as long as history, uh, right up to probably Isaac Newton's time and not too much uh, after that. So when he says wise men, it's pretty much everybody. (laughs) Everybody with half a brain that serves in the government of the king um, is to be executed. Um, Why do you think he's so drastic? 
Well, he's probably thinking, you know, this is everyone's in on this conspiracy to mm. screw me over, essentially. Mm-hmm. If it's these wise men who've been telling me lies all along, well, might as well get, get rid of, of a lot of them. Yeah, get rid of a lot of them and mm-hmm. get in a fresh start. Yep, yep. And it was usually the way that kings would deal with things. You didn't forgive people and fire them. Firing people was the quickest way to have enemies that would try to assassinate you down the track, that would try to uh, usurp your throne. When you terminate someone, you actually terminate them. Terminate them. Uh, it was it was real, really upset, really angry. Daniel happens to be one of the wise men. Daniel, this young Jewish prince who uh, has now come into the service of the king of Babylon. And I'd encourage you to read chapter one earlier just to get a little bit more insights into the character of Daniel. He's one of the guys who, as part of the cohort of wise men, is to be executed. Brad, would you like to read verse 13 to verse 16? Sure. And because of the king's degree, men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, came to kill them, Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and discretion. He asked Arioch, why has the king issued such a harsh decree? So Arioch told him all that had happened, and Daniel went at once to see the king and requested more time to tell the king what the dream meant. Okay, now the king gives him time. Daniel gets three of his best friends that we read about in the earlier chapter, and they pray that night. When we come back right after the break, we're going to look at the results of Daniel's prayer. When I 
welcome back to Why I Believe. We've just been reading a story in Daniel chapter 2 about a king, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the world's strongest military power, superpower, who has a dream, forgets the dream, and wants his wise men to tell him what the dream was and what it meant. The only problem is they have no idea what he dreamt, and he can't seem to remember it. He commands that they all be executed. Daniel is one of those wise men. Daniel says, give me a little bit more time. And then Daniel and his friends pray. That night, Daniel receives the dream and the interpretation. I can just imagine how excited he is the next day, knowing that he gets to live on this earth a little bit longer. Um, Let's keep reading in the Bible a little bit more of the story. I've got Michael and Brad here with me, joining me in the conversation and helping me uh, read through the story. Uh, Let's read from verse 25 to verse 28. Brad, could you read those, please? Sure. Ariel quickly took Daniel to the king and said, I found one of the captives from Judah who will tell the king the meaning of his dream. The king said to Daniel, Is this true? Can you tell me what my dream was and what it means? Daniel replied, There are no wise men, no enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. Okay. Daniel acknowledges a reality that we also know. Hmm. None of us can predict the future. And none of us can possibly try to figure out what somebody else dreamed. These are things that are in the supernatural realm. It's, it's really great to see as well. He's not trying to take the credit to himself at all, one little bit, yeah, that he now has the interpretation and the dream. Absolutely. Now, it's interesting that the wise men, when they were protesting their innocence, they say, nobody can do this except for the gods. And Daniel says the same thing, but yep. he says, my God, he is the God who can give you an answer, tell you what you dreamt and, and he what has. it meant. He's, and he has. he's given you a dream and here's the interpretation right from Absolutely. God as well. It's from him. And he says something interesting that we need to pay attention to as we start reading more about this dream. He says that this is about what will happen in days to come. So mm. this dream is specifically about the future. It's a prophecy. So we're going to read it as such. Michael, just start reading from verse 29 and let's read through the dream. We're going to go in one quick swoop, reading from beginning to end. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like the chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Okay, so just in a nutshell, he sees this big statue, a figure of a man made of different metals. At the end of, or close to the end of the dream, there's a rock that smashes the statue. The statue disappears, and there's a mountain in its place. Um, I, I guess from the king's perspective, he didn't even remember the dream, but it doesn't sound like a, a horror dream or a nightmare. But obviously, God gave it to him and 
put on his heart such a strong desire to know it that he's, he's intensely passionate about discovering what to this the point stream of means. killing others if they didn't tell him. Yeah, and not just others, but all of his wise men. Yeah. It's like all the parliament, all your scientists, everybody with half a brain gone. So mm. obviously this stream has significant uh, meaning and value. We're going to start looking at the interpretation uh, as Daniel explains it bit by bit, and we're also going to parallel that with history. Remember, this dream happened um, around... 2,500 years ago, 25, 2,600 years ago, somewhere around um, 550, 580 BC. At that time, Babylon was the world's superpower. There were a few other stronger nations, but nobody close to being able to dominate world affairs or the known world affairs like Babylon. So keep these things in mind as we start to interpret it. Um, Brad, why don't you read verse 36 to verse 38, please? That was the dream. Now we will tell the king what it means. Your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. He has made you the ruler over all of the inhabited world and has even put the wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. Okay, so what is Daniel saying, or what has God told Daniel to say in terms of what this statue represents, and at least the first part of the statue? Well, it's, um, the first part of the statue is Nebuchadnezzar's own kingdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so gold. Now, we know gold is really significant to the Babylonians. Uh, they had mountain loads of gold. Some of their altars and their temples were made. Uh, I know one of the altars had around 18 tons of solid gold put into it. It's um, crazy, isn't it? It was. It really was a kingdom of gold. It was powerful. It was rich. It was wealthy. And what Daniel says is, as you look at the future, uh, the world superpower at the moment is you. You are it. But based on the dream we just read, where there are different metals or these statues made up of different metals, obviously this kingdom is not going to last forever. And even in terms of of what we understand of world history, Babylon was the original superpower. Mm. There was like maybe the Sumerians or the Mesopotamians or something like that beforehand, but they weren't a huge conquering empire with a huge army and... Mm wonders of the world you know you talk about the hanging gardens of babylon and things like that Mm. babylon was the original superpower and a superpower not just because it conquered the assyrians conquered as well but the babylonians influenced culture and changed the tide of history so they didn't just go out rule nations and get taxes they changed the way people read the way people thought the way governments worked, the way currency worked and that's what we call a superpower one that doesn't just conquer the world but one that influences Mm. the world and changes culture and you're right babylon was really the world's first major superpower that had an influence over humanity Mm. or at least the known world for that period of time Uh, let's keep reading i think we're up to you brad verse 39 But after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise to take your place. After that kingdom has fallen, a third kingdom represented by bronze will rise to rule the world. Okay. Now, I can imagine how uh, Nebuchadnezzar would have felt about this. What do you think was going through his mind as he hears this next part of the interpretation? Wait wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs) I'm not finishing up anytime soon. Absolutely. That's not good news. You wouldn't want to hear that. But that's what the statue is made of, different metals, and that's how Daniel interprets it. At least he had a little bit of a recompense in saying, well, it won't be quite as good. Yeah, it's going to be inferior. It's a silver kingdom and a bronze kingdom. They're not gold. Um, Who do we know came, came to the world power, world dominion after the Babylonians? Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia, yep. Modern day, um, I guess, parts of um, Iran 
that part of the world there. Cyrus the Great, probably one of the greatest generals in world history, led the Medo-Persian nation to empire status, to world dominance. Cyrus himself was part Mede, part Persian. His father was a Persian. His mother was a Median princess. And um, it's a fascinating story. Google Cyrus the Great life story, and you'll find an amazing, I guess, history from Herodotus, an ancient historian, about how Cyrus came to power. And uh, his grandfather actually tried to kill him as a baby. Fascinating story, really enjoyable. I think they're making a movie out of it as well. Medo-Persia comes on the world stage, rules the world from about 539 BC to 331 BC. Now, it was a kingdom of silver. Silver was their main currency, unlike Babylon, who used gold. They amassed vast amounts of silver and used uh, silver utensils, silver currency. Silver was in during the Medo-Persian Empire. But even that wasn't to last forever. It says that the third kingdom, who came after the Medo-Persians? The Greeks. The Greeks. Who do we know? Uh, what famous Greek general uh, is well known? Alexander the Great. Alexander Except the Great. he was Macedonian. But, it, well, his dad was. Yes, <laughs> he was indeed. Yes. Uh, but he took over. Yep. Again, another long story, but he took over the Greek Empire. Yep. First Pol- one to unite all the Greek tribes, basically. Yes, yes. And he didn't just take over the Medo-Persian Empire, but he expanded it significantly. So each of these kingdoms seems to be weaker in some ways, but bigger um, in others. Mm. Um, We know that the Greeks used bronze armor, um, bronze coins, and really a lot of everything bronze. Mm. And it's fascinating that the statue parallels the kind of medals that were the medals of choice for those particular kingdoms. Yeah, because you think about it, there's no real logical progression. You can understand gold to silver because, you know, gold's probably the most valuable metal. Silver kind of comes next bronze mm. unless you think of metals like as in gold metal silver metal bronze metals yeah, which one came first <laughs> <laughs> and you yeah. know what's interesting we still use those three in yeah. terms of value don't we yep you go to the olympics yep and it's those three where do you think they came from why were they chosen that way it's very good question was it because of the periodic table well not really no. they're not exactly in order in the periodic table well, bronze, are they? bronze isn't an element no. well there you go and yet you yep. get a bronze medal uh, so even we realize the the successive value of each one of those things as you go uh, up. Uh, let's keep reading and discover the next kingdom um, from verse 40 on. Would you like to read verse 40 um, to verse 41, please, Michael? Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet you will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with the baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. Okay, we've just read about two kingdoms. The first one is the kingdom of iron. What was the next kingdom after Alexander the Great? Rome. Rome, 168 to about 450-something BC. Yep, kingdom of Rome, strong as iron. They used iron swords, iron for currency, iron for armor, iron for buildings, iron for lots of things. Mm. Uh, And they definitely smashed the world into submission. Yeah, yeah, Rome was unparalleled. If If you're interested in history, Rome was definitely unparalleled in how 
ruthless and like a machine yeah mm. really efficient in how they conquered and assimilated places into their empire yeah yeah absolutely so there's rome clear as uh, mud and then it says that the kingdom is to be divided like iron and clay uh, now i'm not sure about you but um trying to mix something hard like iron with clay doesn't seem to make sense if you try to make a pot out of both and you drop the pot what would happen doesn't sound like it's very strong. I mean, like nowadays, though, it's not that different to concrete when you think about it. With you get the mixture of the, <laughs> the earth with the steel together. Well, it's, we've um, come a long way in terms <laughs> of technology. We have, but just trying to get clay and steel to mix. Mm. Yeah, that's a bit different yep, story. Yeah, and it even says, you know, some of it is strong, some of it is weak. Yeah, and he basically says that after the Roman Empire, there will be no world power that rules the world. There'll be some strong nations and there'll be some weak nations. Some will prosper and continue, some will be weak, but nobody's going to rule the world. And what's interesting is that there have been a lot of people who have tried to prove this prophecy wrong. Can you think of some examples? Napoleon's a good one. Napoleon, yeah. I've just finished reading a volume on Napoleon. Yeah, his aim was to unite the world. Yep, anyone else? Hitler was a more recent one. Hitler, more recent. Um, Charlemagne, Charles V. Uh, and we can go back through history. Genghis Khan, we don't even talk about Genghis often in Western culture. Mm. He got as far as Austria. Not to mention what's been happening in the last hundred years. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, the European Union project, oh, uh, yeah. the United Nations project, and so on. Many people are trying to unite the world, but prophecy here says it would never happen. What was the last part of this prophecy? Um, Brad, would you like to read from verse 44 to verse 45? During the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and it'll stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands, that crushes to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God was showing the king Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. The dream is true, and its meaning is certain. So the last kingdom? It's the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God. It says God himself will set up a kingdom, one that will last, not like these earthly kingdoms Mm. that oppress and abuse and torture and take advantage of people and ultimately that don't last, get defeated by another one. 2,500 years ago, this king has a dream about successive world empires. If you look at history, and do this on Wikipedia, look at world empires, you'll find it perfectly matches this dream. Mm. Now you can say, wow, what good luck. Really? (laughs) Do you think we could guess world empires for the next two and a half thousand years? No one would have predicted Italians taking over the world, I don't think. There was some small village on some insignificant river in Italy. Yeah. Um, And then when the Roman Empire took over the world, who would have predicted its fall? Mm-hmm. And then when Napoleon was so close and Hitler was so close, so many thought he was going to happen. We have here really strong evidence that there must be something supernatural, something divine, at least some of the things in the Bible. A prophecy like this just doesn't come through guesswork. Mm. And I guess it goes back to showing what we were talking in the beginning, how that our ability to to predict the future is directly related to our ability to influence it. And if yes. God is who he claims to be, a sovereign ruler over the universe, he can control the fate and the destiny of the future. And so it's perfectly logical if you've got someone who, who has the power to influence things in that degree it's not hard for him to influence the future. And you know what's interesting as you read World War II history, as you read Napoleonic history, as you read the history of Charles V and Charlemagne and Queen Victoria and others, you know, often, and I've read a number of books, historians say it seemed to be like sheer luck or fate turned mm. against them. <laughs> yeah. You know, and there's these instances in history where it just doesn't make sense why, why these people didn't succeed. Yeah. And historians use the word luck, fate or fortune. 
The Bible says there was a hand, a divine hand, that was guiding history. And you know, why couldn't a young, intelligent person take the Bible seriously? Because the Bible does something nobody else can. Predict the future with incredible accuracy, and not only predict the future, but give us hope. Mm. We don't just have successive empires, one after another, with no end in sight. The Bible says that after all these divided kingdoms, like what we're living in now, there's no unity, nobody's in charge of the world. The very next kingdom is a kingdom of God, something to look forward to, something will last, something where the God of the Bible that we'll learn about later says he sets it up on his principles that truly bring harmony, contentment, and peace. So much to look forward to. Yeah, and it even says that even while these kings, iron and clay, are reigning, that God is already working, setting up his kingdom. He's in charge, he's in control. We can rest assured that even when things don't necessarily make sense, God knows the beginning to the end, God sees the future, God is in charge and he's in control of it. And hey, we may go through difficult times, this is only a small portion of the eternity that he's got promised for us. Brad, Michael, really good to have you here today. We're going to explore a little bit more about the God of the Bible. Who is he? What is he like over the next few sessions? If you've enjoyed Why I Believe, visit us at faithfm.com.au and contact us with any questions, thoughts, comments, opinions you may have. We'd love to be able to share those on air. Thank you for staying with us and we'll see you next time.